James chapter 2, as we continue to walk through this very practical letter and try to see what the Lord might teach us from it. We're going to begin in chapter, in chapter 2, of course, verse 14 today. We're going to be asking and trying to answer the question, what is the relationship between faith and works? What is the relationship between faith and works? It might sound a little redundant, because just a few weeks ago we asked the same question. And the reason we asked the same question is because James dealt with the same issue. And so all we are doing today is following the pattern of the text. When the text repeats something, we repeat it too, right? Because we are submitted ourselves, we have submitted ourselves to Scripture. Many times the Scriptures repeat themselves because we are slow to learn. And we, we require a little bit of repetition, right? I was wondering about these things last night. I, on Saturday nights, I come up to the church. I go over my sermon one last time. I mark it up. And then I come up here into the sanctuary and I pray for you and for our time together on Sunday mornings. And last night, I don't know, I suppose because Saturday night is that night when I go over the sermon one last time and it's the night that I pray. Sometimes it's the night, it's the time of the week when, when the enemy, Satan, is trying to discourage me a little bit. And as I was sitting there down in my office on my computer making a couple little final edits and I happened to... Uh, I happened to look on Facebook, and Facebook had a recommended job for me. Pizza, pizza delivery in Clarksville. And I wondered, Lord, is this a sign? Like, yeah, I'm already discouraged, and now, and now you're sending me like a recommended job, Greg. You need to throw in the towel, right? You need to go start hustling some pizzas. Well, I'm not going to do that. Um, at least I have no plans to do that. But we should not be discouraged when the, when the text seems to do something a little redundant. One time when I was in college, of course you remember uh, perhaps me telling you that I went to a small Christian school. It was a great place to be. Um, but I went to a, a Christian college there in, in the upstate of South Carolina. And we had to go to chapel uh, every so often. And by every so often, it was twice a week. And so on Mondays and Wednesdays uh, mornings at 10 o'clock, uh, we had chapel. And one particular semester, we had independently of, of one another, I think we had six different chapel speakers speak on the same passage of Scripture from 2 Samuel. Okay? And by about the fourth or fifth time, some students started to email the guy who arranged all the chapel speakers that invited, invited them and said, We need to hear something new. We need to hear something different. I mean, don't, don't, don't you know, like, this is the fourth or the fifth time that these guys have spoken on the same subject. And the response to that, which I thought was very appropriate, was, listen, perhaps God has, has prompted six different people to speak on the same passage because that's what we need to hear. And I would say, as we submit ourselves to Scripture, as we walk through it, let's not be afraid of the repetition what is the relationship between faith and works? You see, some people seem to think that they can work to get to heaven, right? Alan Jackson, and working hard to get to heaven, where I come from, right? 
Other people seem to think that they get a taste of grace and they think, well, this must mean there are no obligations at all anymore. Works have no place. I'm, I'm saved. I got my ticket you know, punched. My, my form is stamped. And now I'm on my way to heaven. I, I don't need to do anything else at all. And so there are these two ditches, right, of legalism, working to get to heaven, and then license, as if we have a license just to live however we desire. But the gospel is the narrow road in between those two ditches. And so morning, this morning we're going to be asking the question, what is real faith made up of? What is real faith made up of? And I'm going to try to argue this, or I'm going to let James argue this, that real faith is a faith that works. Real faith is a faith that works. Let's read James chapter 2, verse 14 and following. He asks a question. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? This is called a rhetorical question, right? Can that faith save him? The answer that is in between the lines is no. Verse 15. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be, be warm and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that said, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by his works and not faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab, the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messengers that sent them out and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Let's pray. God, as we read this scripture, we know that we never approach your scriptures and leave unchanged. We're always changed. You always call us to something out of your Bible, out of your word. And so, God, I pray that we would be sensitive today. I pray that we would ask you, that we would be asking you with our hearts, what is it that you require us to do or to change or to be or to become? And would you do that work in us, Lord? I pray that you would do it today. In the name of Jesus, amen. Friends, there's a lot to wade through here, not only because I've read quite a long portion of Scripture, but because there are some confusing things in here. And it's necessary for us to, a little later in the sermon, get into the weeds a little bit and try to determine exactly how do we make this passage fit in the rest of the Bible. Uh, because it seems that James is saying something a little different than Paul would say. James even comes out and says, faith, uh, that, that works, we're justified by works. What does that mean? Is he... Is he saying that somehow the gospel that Paul preached, that, that, that salvation is by faith apart from works, is, is wrong? Well, no, that's not the case. But we need to kind of get into the weeds to understand these things as we ask the question, what is real faith made up of? 
I've told you the story that right out of college when the economy was not doing so great and I was serving a church and going to seminary and doing some things, I, wanted, I needed to get another job. And so I, I, I applied and was hired at a bank uh, for a period of time until the Lord raptured me out of there. And um, one of the things about our branch, though, was that um, we lived in a, in a place, this branch was in a place where I guess it was convenient for a number of businesses to do all of their deposits at this particular location. We lived near a, very, a group of very high-end um, homes. You know, people like John Smoltz and other people have, have a home, have a home there uh, on these golf course communities. And, and so you know, there, were, there were some higher-end folks who came in, and then there were some businesses who came in and did uh, their transactions with us. One of the businesses that always brought us their deposits was a chain of, of convenience stores. And this chain of convenience stores had a little bit of a problem. And their problem was that no matter how much training they had done for their cash register attendants, they seemed to always be able to let a couple counterfeit $100 bills get past them. And this was always discouraging to them because when they would bring the deposit in, we would catch them. We can't give them credit for that money, right? It's just not real. It got past their cashiers, but it, it didn't get past our tellers. And so these banks had all these little pins, and they had the lights, and they had all kinds of, you know, hold it up to the light, and all these different things. They'd done some training, but still some seemed to slip through the cracks. But what I noticed after working at this bank for a while is that it never really got past our tellers. And the reason was, and our tellers didn't use a little machine, and they didn't have to pull out the pen and, and, and draw the pen across these bills. They knew the fake ones by feel. You know, fake money or paper, paper is made up of like a wood pulp, you know. But money is made up of like, it's about 75% cotton and, and linen, and now they're even putting some plastic in there. It's just a different feel. And the, the reason that the tellers were able to tell the difference they were able to tell the true bills from the false bills is because they had spent so much time around the real thing. They'd spent so much time around the real thing that when something fake, I mean, out of a, a stack of 20, they could pick out the one that was bad just right off the bat and say, yeah, this is it's no good. And sure enough, the machine would tell you that and the pen would tell you that. And we'd have to tell, we'd have to tell the, the person depositing this money that. The reality is this. The Scriptures tell us what the real thing is. There are genuine expressions of faith, and there's counterfeit faith. And the Bible calls us to, it says, make your calling and election sure. It says, make sure you're in the faith. And so we have to examine ourselves in light of the Scriptures. The Scriptures are like the, the teller that, that knows the difference between what is true and what is false. In a similar way, we can see what genuine saving faith is made up of. What is it composed of? And we know this, our works do not save us. Our works cannot save us. Trusting in our works is the same as throwing out the gospel. But at the same time, the real faith, the faith that does save, is a faith that is made up of works. You see that? It's worthwhile to note that Martin Luther uh, did not much like James's letter here. Of course, the great reformer, Martin Luther, who, who was a monk. He was living in a monastery. He was so racked by guilt, he needed to 
to go daily to confession. And he went to confession every day to try to try to discern, is there any kind of hidden sin in me that I can confess? And maybe if I can get it all out, that God will be happy with me. As a matter of fact, he actually wore out a couple of the priests who, who took his confession. I mean, he was in confession for hours and hours on end in a particular day. He's so racked by guilt, he couldn't seem to get free of this burden of condemnation over his own sin. And then one day, even after he had lectured at the universities, he had lectured through Romans, he had lectured through Galatians, and then one day, one day he was reading in, in the book of Romans. And it's like the skies opened up for him. And God converted him. God opened the eyes of his heart and he saw, he saw the beauty, the beauty of the gospel, that salvation is by grace through faith. Not of works so that no man can boast. So, of course, Martin Luther, he comes to a passage like this in James chapter 2, which seems to say, hey, you need to be doing some good works. And he doesn't like it very much because, because he came out of this legalistic, he's in that ditch, he came out of this legalistic uh, history where he's trying to work his way to God. Okay? And so he, he comes to this and he, he, calls, he calls James an epistle of straw. He doesn't even think it should be included in the Bible, as a matter of fact. But that's not the case, as we will labor to demonstrate today. James asks this question in verses 14 through 19. Can that faith save him? What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? And he gives an example of seeing a poor person and, and not taking care of their needs, just saying some kind of trite phrase like, hey, be blessed, but not doing anything for them. Can this faith save them? In other words, what type of faith is needed? The rest of the passage is really confusing unless we understand this point. That this passage is trying to define the kind of faith. It's not telling us what works we need to do in addition to faith. It's not as if we need to have faith and if we really want to get over the hump, we need to do some works too. That's just, that's just works salvation. That's just, in a sense, uh, we, we could even say uh, much akin to Catholicism. But here's what saving faith is not in verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. So what, what saving faith is not? It is not dry belief. It's not just dry belief. Some have thought that saving faith is just simply believing that God is real. Almost like you could believe that maybe Bigfoot is real. It's possible to believe that things are real and these things have no bearing on your life, right? Some people have thought that saving faith is just a dry belief. Yes, I believe that God is real and I, I must be good. Others have thought of saving faith as, as merely a decision. Of course, a decision is involved, but this is not the sum total of saving faith. As Baptists, we've rightly emphasized that if someone is saved, they are saved forever. But often I'm afraid we've spoken of salvation by emphasizing our response to God's activity, almost as if we can save ourselves. But the reality is salvation is a work of God. And when He does that work, He creates inside of us a new heart with new desires to serve God out of joy and out of gratitude, no longer out of obligation. So it's not this intellectual assent it's not dry belief. Of course, we know that it's not because Jesus himself says that when he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. 
In other words, there's some kind of faith, the faith that produces change, the kind of faith that God implants in us. He, he puts it there, he waters it, he causes it to grow. It would be like when I was a young kid and I went to camp. I was always kind of afraid of heights. Um, and we were going to go rappelling. You know what rappelling is. It's, it's like the opposite of rock climbing. You just go down, right? And the thing about rappelling is that you can't really see where you're going, right? Because you're like reclining and you're kind of looking over your shoulder. How, how close is the ground down there? And they told me it was only 80 feet, but it looked like 200 and I'm letting myself down by the ropes, and I start to get a little, you know, I'm like 12 years old, I start to get a little, you know, shaky and stuff. And the instructor says, remember that Ford Expedition that I drove up the mountain up here? And I said, yeah. I said, look up the mountain too. Said, yeah, I remember. And he says, you know that these ropes are actually rated to hold that, that truck? That, that, it is actually, that these ropes are actually strong enough to hold my truck up off the side of this mountain. And I said, Really? Like that makes me feel good. But you know, there's a difference between believing that the ropes can hold you and believing it so much that you start to go down the side of the mountain, right? There's a difference in believing that God is real and believing that He is who He says He is and that He means what He says, uh, that He means what He says, and that He is the way, the truth, and the life. So saving faith is not just dry belief, it's a kind of belief where we put all of our chips in down on Him, where we put all of our eggs in the basket of who He is. It's this trusting, life-surrendering faith. Secondly, saving faith is not just doctrinal knowledge. Luther knows this. Luther, Martin Luther, had, had lectured to university students about the book of Romans, Paul's greatest theological work, perhaps. He had lectured to them about Galatians. But he hadn't come to understand it himself. And then, of course, the Lord opened the eyes of his heart. Of his heart. It says this in verse 19. You believe that God is one. He's, he's, he's talking to them. Of course, these are mainly Jewish believers in Jerusalem. You believe that God is one, and you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. What he's saying here, he's quoting the Shema, which is this part of the Old Testament from Deuteronomy Chapter 6. Remember, this is what every little Jewish kid would have been able to recite from memory. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And, and James says to them, you believe that God is one. In other words, you believe the Shema like you ought to. You believe what the Old Testament says about Jesus. Great. Even the demons believe that. And they shudder. In other words, friends, it's not simply about doctrinal knowledge. It's not about believing the right things, although we should. We should believe the right things. There's no gospel apart from right belief. But the reality is this. If we place our hope in which podcasts we listen to or which pastors we love or which books we've read or what degrees we have, that is not a good basis of hope. The basis of hope is a heart that has been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's what we can say. The doctrine that you really believe, the gospel that you really believe, is the one that you live. That's what you really believe. 
That's what we really believe. The gospel that we really believe is the one that we live out. Second point is this. I haven't done a very good job of explaining to you what my points are. The first is, can that faith save him? The second one is this. Saving faith is characterized by action and change. Saving faith is characterized by action and change. I'm going to read verses 20 through 26 again just because it bears repeating. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works? This is crazy that he's saying this in this way. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. So you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. This is even more earth shattering. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So isn't Paul and James, aren't Paul and James, don't they have a beef here? Don't they have some kind of contradiction? Isn't James abandoning the gospel here by saying you must work to get to heaven? It's not at all what he's saying. Let me try to explain. Romans 3.28 does say, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. James here seems to be saying that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Indeed, if you were to go to a secular university today and take a, take a New Testament course, the professor who's likely an unbeliever will be probably trying to play this up and saying, see, don't you see how the church didn't even have his act together in the first century? They were teaching two different gospels and it's all in the same Bible, so you can't trust this thing. But the reality is this, a basic, you know, a first... A sophomore, you know, hermeneutic student could, could probably parse this out pretty easily. Paul and James are using the term justified differently. It has to do with context. Context is king. It's what, what you're taught in a Bible interpretation class. There's a big word called hermeneutics. Context is king. So what is, what is Paul meaning when he uses the word justified? When Paul uses the word justified in Romans 3... Um, he's using the technical term for, for the legal declaration that God gives us when we come to Jesus Christ. That we are justified, that it is just if I'd never sinned. This, this legal God taking away our guilt and giving us the goodness of Jesus. That's how Paul seems to consistently use that word. Okay, Remember when we went through, those of you who were here, the different... The different gospel pictures, the different words of the gospel. There's, there's conversion, there's a repentance and faith, there's uh, justification, there's regeneration, there's uh, glorification that comes in the future. All of these different words, that's how Paul's using it. He's using it as the technical term for what happens when you have faith, when God opens the eyes of your heart, you repent and believe, you are at that moment justified. James is using the term a little bit differently, and I think it's very clear from the context. He's asking a different question. He's asking what kind of faith will show us in the end that it was genuine. In other words, what is the type of faith that is genuine? He's asking a different question, and he's giving a different answer. It would be like this. If I came home 
from the church one day and it had been maybe a more stressful day and I walk in the door and Whitney asked me, hey, you know, Greg, how was your day? And I say, sweetie, I am just done. Okay. And then five minutes later, I've gone back and I maybe changed clothes, you know, washed my face or whatever, wiped the day off of my face and I come back in and I say, hey, Whitney, um, what, what time is supper going to be ready? And she says, oh, supper's already done. Okay. We're using the same word done, and we're using it in different ways to answer two different questions. Does that make sense? Okay, I come in and I say, I am just done. And she knows exactly what I mean. I come back in and I say, is the food ready? She says, the food's done. I know exactly what she means. We're using the same word in different, in different contexts to answer two different questions. So don't ever let anybody kind of fool you about what's happening here in James. James is answering the question, what is the content of this faith that will in the end justify us when we are before God at the final day? And he, say, he gives these examples. Gives exa examples of Rahab. Look, she had genuine faith because she acted on it. Look, look, what about Abraham? He had genuine faith. How do we know? Because he acted on it. What was the kind of faith that they had? It was a kind of faith that worked. It wasn't just dry knowledge. It wasn't just doctrine. It wasn't dry belief. It was a faith that worked. And of course, James affirms this gospel truth. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Friends, the gospel is this. Salvation by faith apart from works, but that kind of saving faith will always have works with it. Does that make sense? You're not saved by the works, but the works will always come for those who are genuinely believers. So here's what we can say. If you do not have works, if you do not have evidence of life change, if you do not have the gospel spilling out of your life, you may need to do business with God because when He takes over, He takes over all of you. There is no such thing as coming to Jesus as Savior without coming to Him as Lord. You get all of Him. He cannot be Divided. This doesn't mean that we will be perfect. This doesn't mean we will always want the right things or always think the right things or always uh, live the right way. But it, it doesn't mean that we won't stumble. Clearly we stumble. Even young men stumble and fall. But it does mean something and it means this. There is no such thing as salvation without change. Salvation always brings life change. I would submit to you that it's this way. Because salvation is not a work that we do. It's a work that God does in us. And when He does that work, when He causes that seed to grow, it produces something in us that is not from us. It is from Him. This is why Jesus doesn't simply say repent and believe. He says this, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Friends, I hope this has been clear. I hope it's been helpful. But I would say to you, if I were to try to get into your shoes, perhaps you've spent your life wondering if you've done enough. One, you know, what I love about uh, preaching revivals is you get to come in and preach all your favorite material and then go out and never have to, you know, deal with the people. Stuff like that. That's a joke, right? I love, I love you all. I love my church. But you get, invited to, you get invited to other people's church and you go in and you preach. One time I was preaching about the gospel and this lady who had come from a Catholic background, she, she wanted to speak with me after the service. 
I said, sure. And so the pastor, me and the pastor and her, we went into the pastor's office. She sat down and she said, I just want to make sure, you know, a couple years ago I, I, I got saved and, and I believed in Jesus and I got baptized here in this church. And, and I just want to make sure, I mean, tell, are, there, are there any more like works I need to do in order to get into heaven? And I said, ma'am, it was never about that in the first place. It was never about you being good enough. It was about you seeing that Jesus was good enough on your behalf and you placing your faith in Him that it's His life in exchange for yours. Maybe that's you. Maybe you wonder. Maybe, maybe that's the default. I wonder if God will let me in. Well, friends, it's actually not up for question if you are trusting in Jesus Christ because it's not based on any good that you've done. It's based on His good. Perhaps others of you, 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 you have professed faith but you recognize now from James that a mere profession is not, is not the sum of... Anybody can make some kind of profession. Anybody can say words. Confessing Christ as Lord is not some kind of magical incantation that somehow unlocks the gate. It's a work of God. So perhaps you're, you're recognizing that I've never really... You know, I've, I haven't really seen much fruit in my life. I would say to you, I would say if you haven't seen fruit from your salvation, today could be the day of salvation for you. I would say respond to Jesus Christ. Come to Him. He desires to change you if you would repent and believe. If you turn away from your sins and ask for His life credited to your account. Or thirdly, maybe today's passage, maybe you walked in today and you really needed to hear something about your situation. And this passage just didn't really go directly at it. I said this last Sunday, I'll say this again. Don't give up on God's Word. It, God's Word has everything that you need for life and godliness. And simply because it wasn't addressed directly today doesn't mean that it won't be addressed. God's Word is full, it is sufficient, it is useful, and it is sharper than any two-edged sword. So trust in Jesus. If I can help you in any way apply anything from the Bible to your situation, I want you to know that that's what I'm here for. Would you pray with me as we respond to our Lord? Pray, and, and would you stand as I pray?